This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. Watching something you've built leave the Earth and get to orbit on a rocket, it, it's, it's a, quite a feeling to see something that you've worked on get so far away from, from where you're stuck. And then getting the first contact and signal down that lets you know it's working. <laughs> That's the next part. You don't always get that. But if you do, you, you definitely grow an affinity for the satellite, almost like it is your child or, or your dog or a cat or something. It's, it's, it's like part of your family, and you look forward to seeing it again and hearing from it. That's Carrie Cahoy. She and her team at MIT design and build mini satellites that get launched into space by piggybacking on rockets that are launching much larger satellites. There are hundreds of these so-called CubeSats circling the Earth, doing everything from improving weather forecasting to monitoring crops and even spotting faraway planets. This is going to be fun for me because you you work with something I've never heard of before, these little cube-shaped things that you send up way high above the Earth. What do you call them? They're cube satellites or CubeSats. Everybody calls them CubeSats. And what, they're really small, huh? Yeah. So uh, the smallest that I've worked with is about the size of a coffee cup. So 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters cubed. And you can stack them together um, to form sizes more like a bread loaf stack of three of them, which is very common, or a three by two grid, like a backpack sized. So bread loaf sized and backpack sized satellites. I used to work on ones that were the size of a school bus. But what the little ones can do for us that the big ones can't is we can put more of them separated in orbit. So if we have a big satellite, it will go around the Earth. And even if it's pretty close to the Earth, like where the space station is, that's at an altitude above the surface of about 400 kilometers up, um, it takes about 90 minutes to go around. But when it comes back, it doesn't come back over the exact same spot underneath it that it was because the Earth has rotated. And the orbit's also moving, processing a little bit. So it can take sometimes up to days or even two weeks for that satellite to go over the exact same spot underneath it again. So why does it matter that it doesn't show you the same spot on the Earth? Why, why do you need that? Well, your things like your weather forecast models are only as good as the data that you can put into them. And sometimes it's really important to get data every 15 minutes so that you have the updated temperature, pressure, um, humidity measurements that you need to put into something like a weather forecasting model. If you're looking at things like, let's say, trying to count cars in your competitor's parking lot to see if the (laughs) consumers are going to the sale that you advertised or their competitor, um, you might want to be able to get data that 
updated or if you're looking at traffic patterns. So all of all of those types of applications need data updated more frequently than every few days. <laughs> you would want it every few minutes or every hour. So is there mainly one or only a few of the bus-sized satellites up there giving us information now? There are several. They are expensive. They tend to cost on the order of a couple to a few hundred million dollars. Um, the rocket itself is is about sixty to hundred million dollars. So you you don't get a lot of them. You don't you don't have people <laughs> going out to buy you know two dozen. How much roughly does a cube cost? The small cube sets. It depends how complicated you want to make them. They can be as little as maybe a hundred thousand dollars. So people who can afford a luxury SUV might be able to afford a their own satellite. Um, <laughs> so I can count my neighbor's cars. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so that means that you can put a lot more of them up there. How many are up there now? There are several hundred um, CubeSats on orbit now, and over 100 are launched every year. How do you get them up? If you don't have a little rocket pushing up each cube, how do you get them up there? They are um, the satellite equivalent of stowaways, where they're just small enough that you can kind of tuck them into a rocket, a tuck a few of them here and there, and they go up in these spring-loaded boxes. So they look for all intents and purposes like a jack-in-the-box. So you have uh-huh. this you have this protective box that you put the satellite in, and it's spring-loaded, but you snap the lid shut. And once you get up to orbit and the fairing, the top part of the rocket separates and the main payload is, you know, sent out, then after that's released, they will send commands to fire the little CubeSats out. So that's one way. The, the other way is you actually go up as stowaway cargo, where you go up to the space station and the space station has robotic arms and they will put this box of spring-loaded CubeSats on the robot arm in the airlock and then send it outside the space station. And then the astronauts will command the little CubeSats to be deployed from the robotic arm below and behind the space station. This seems like a wonderful way to improve the way we learn about what our weather is going to be. But I get the impression that you can use these satellites for other things as well. That's right. You can. They're great for imaging and taking pictures at different filter colors, which can tell you about the properties of what you're looking at on the surface. So the state of health of plants or farms. So if you're looking at how crops are growing, how well things are doing, whether there's been damage from storms shadows and trying to figure out the depths of water in reservoirs or oil and and refineries. If you're trying to monitor these things remotely, you might have tagged items. You can think about tagging birds or wildlife, maybe trying to locate these things and keep information kind of like in um, Harry Potter, where they have the map, <laughs> and you can see where things are moving. Um, you might be able to do that more real time. So that's pointing it down toward the Earth. 
Can you make use of mm-hmm. the satellites if you look in the other direction out in space? Yes, we do that too. So you can use the satellites as telescopes. So one of the things that limits you on the ground when you're taking data, looking at stars or looking at planets, is at some point the sun rises. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) You can't see um, your targets anymore. So you can find orbits or work with a network of satellites that can maintain continuous coverage of a star or a astrophysics target because you have them planned out so that when you have one in daylight, there are others in eclipse that are able to stay pointed on the same target. Hmm, this is fascinating. So this is an advantage to having many of them up there. Instead of one big, expensive, gigantic, bus-shaped thing, you've got these coffee cup-shaped cubes that can, are so numerous, you can you can keep your eye on what you're interested in indefinitely, apparently. Like exoplanets, you want to look at them for a while, right? You can't just get a glimpse of them. That's right. And, you know, maybe you might need a bigger telescope to be able to get enough photons to come in to get a strong signal. But there are measurements of exoplanets that you can make. For example, staring at a star and looking for the star to dim as the planet goes in front of the star and casts the shadow. That's called transit detection of exoplanets. And there are missions like one called Asteria that another professor, Sarah Seeger at MIT, did where you can use these CubeSats to point at stars and look for the dimming that gives you the sign that there's an exoplanet around it. And you could have enough of them where each CubeSat was dedicated to looking at one star or maybe having two or three of them look at the same star and trade off when they're in eclipse. So you can definitely do things like that. You can monitor the sun and space weather every so often. The magnetic field of the sun separates and reconnects and causes solar flares, which send highly energetic particles outward, spiraling outward from the sun. And some of them interact with the earth and our magnetic field and cause aurora and radio outages and (laughs) difficulties with navigating um, when you're looking at radio signals from the global positioning satellite system, for example. This this is amazing. These little boxes are like the Swiss army knife of astronomy. You can do so many things with them. And compared to the cost of the big devices, they're relatively inexpensive. Yeah, they're they're really great to be able to have a large number of them and also great to use them for people who are not already experts in satellites can work on them without being too afraid of breaking something and needing to (laughs) buy something expensive to replace it. I think it'll be even more fun in the next few years when we start to get better at moving them around in their orbits with propulsion systems and little thrusters. Right now, most of the CubeSats that are up are able to tip and tilt and point Um, Like you would be if you were sitting in your office chair and you wanted to lean back or you wanted to lean forward or turn from side to side, they can do that, but they don't have a way to scoot themselves across the room (laughs) on the wheels. (laughs) So thrusters on a satellite let you translate and move around a little bit, um, which is most useful in a satellite in going 
up or going down. If you go up, you're going a little slower. It takes you a little longer to complete your orbit. If you scoot your altitude down a little closer to the Earth, so you whiz by a little faster. And so that lets you um, change your coverage and where you're passing over. And so I think in the future, when we are able to also include that kind of capability on the little guys, it'll be really interesting what we'll be able to do. We'll be able to formation fly them and swarm them together and make telescopes out of a number of them talking to each other. Hmm. Hmm. That's so exciting. Yeah. So you also are working, I understand, on another way to, to communicate between the cube set and the Earth. What does that involve? Yeah. So another way, instead of using radio to communicate between the cube set and the Earth, is using lasers. So what, what we did was um, we wanted, well, if you're using lasers to send the data down, everyone's like, oh, you can't use lasers. You can't use lasers. Lasers can't get through clouds. You can't use lasers. That's a terrible idea. Why would you use lasers? They're clouds. You know, you'd, you'd, maybe you'd only be able to use them in a place where there's no clouds. But if you had enough ground stations that you could just downlink to the places where there weren't clouds or where there was very minimal cloud cover, or you could reconfigure your ground station and take it with you wherever you needed it to be, it could really be worth it because you can get down in one minute with a laser downlink, what would take you all day, sometimes two days to downlink on radio. Um, so we figured we need small, <laughs> portable, lots of low cost optical ground stations. You could use big astronomy telescopes, but those are expensive and fixed and cost millions of dollars to set up and you'd never get enough of them to be able to get around this cloud problem. Um, so we got a amateur astronomy telescope, a, you know, 18 inch Lestron, um, <laughs> not, not too big. Um, probably that, you know, not, not the highest class amateur astronomy telescope, just totally reasonable. And we put a camera on it to be able to track the satellite, um, and figure out where it is in the sky quickly. And we improved the software. And we added this tracking camera on it so that it could track something that was going horizon to horizon and track it very precisely and capture that incoming laser beam from it. So we practiced by tracking the space station, which is a big, bright object going across the sky in about 10 minutes and in the 400-kilometer orbit that it's in. This is so wonderfully complex. I love it. So does your lab have a satellite up there now? Yeah, we have a satellite on orbit right now that is called DEMI. It's short for Deformable Mirror Demonstration, and it's sponsored by DARPA. What it is is it's a backpack size CubeSat, and the students built a small telescope on it. And what we wanted to do with this is we wanted to prove that a new kind of teeny tiny mirror that has little pokey actuators on it and can change the shape of a beam of light will work in space because we need those teeny tiny mirrors that can change shape. They're called deformable mirrors on big space telescopes for detecting Earths around other stars. <laughs> so we wanted to show that they worked in space first on these tiny CubeSats so that we can later put them on big space telescopes. 
So this one's on orbit right now, and it usually has two overpasses a day that we use for commanding it and downlinking data, and they rotate through the day. And so sometimes it's like having a small child because you have a night shift and you have to get up and talk to the satellite at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. Um, <laughs> and so satellites do not follow business hours. Um, That's great. So is everybody in the lab excited? Are you glad to see it when it's passing over again? We are. It's 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 a you you definitely grow an affinity for the satellite, almost like it is your child or or your your um dog or cat or something. It's 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 like part of your family, and you look forward to seeing it again and hearing from it. So, have you calculated the odds of it smashing into some other satellite while it's out of view? Oh my goodness! Yes, actually, there's a whole system for that. It's uh, called a conjunction alert system. So the the U.S. government um, has military resources in place that track space objects, and you have to register when you have something on orbit. And if there's something that's coming close to your satellite, they will send you a message warning you about a possible conjunction. Mm. So I check my email, and when I get these messages from the 18th, I'm like, ah. You know, we all look at the statistics and calculate how close it will come and how fast they're going in what directions. And oh. yeah, they don't happen very often, but but when they do, those are those are those are exciting times in in a not good way. When we come back from our break, Kerry Cahoy talks about the challenge of communicating, not just with her satellites but also among the many different disciplines it takes to design and build them. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kerry Cahoy. It sounds like you have a really enthusiastic team in your lab. Because I imagine they're excited by the idea that they're working on something new and extremely useful, but also pushing the the horizons forward. How many people do you have in your lab? Is it a large group? Yeah. So right now my lab is over 30 people large, and I've been working on space projects for about 25 years now, but the enthusiasm never changes. The ability to have something get away from this strong gravity well of earth and have a new perspective and a new view and get out there and try to do something new and challenging is really motivating. And you do need a lot of different kinds of skill to put a satellite together and operate it. You need 
people who are really good with machining parts and fitting electronics boards into stacks and making sure that things don't get too hot or too cold when they're operating in space because you can't cool things down by turning a fan on. Mm -hmm. So these days, if you're running your computer, you'll hear the fan go on and blow it to cool it down, but you can't do that in space. So things tend to overheat or freeze really easily. Um, so you need a lot of people who can make the electronics boards fit in the satellite and do what you want to do. You need a lot of people who can write software. You need people who can analyze the data. You need people who are good at managing people <laughs> and, and buying hardware and keeping track of it all. Um, that was one of my questions. If you have so many specialized jobs among so many people, my guess would be you have a communication problem because to communicate from one specialized area to another, you have to be able to speak one another's language and not confuse one another with the terminology that is commonplace to you, but not necessarily to the person you're trying to work with. How do you handle a problem like that? That is absolutely a challenge. I'll give one example and then I'll talk a little bit about how we handle it. But the word bus we, we just talked about bus, and when we talk about bus, most people think about a school bus. Hmm. But in satellite talk, if you're a mechanical engineer who builds the hardware and machines the parts, bus means the structure that you that is the satellite, the box that the satellite is, the physical box is called the bus. Hmm. Um, if you're an electrical engineer working on the satellite, you use the word bus to mean the wire that connects data from one thing to another is called the data bus. Um, <laughs> and there are about three other different ways you can use the word bus. So even that one example <laughs> shows how confused people can get on one project um, wow. among their multiple disciplines. So how did you handle that problem? This is where systems engineering and communication are so important. One of the fundamental things about making something that requires so many disciplines is building into it that layer of people whose role it is to connect everybody and make sure everyone's on the same page and really facilitate that communication and, and keep a positive, inquisitive attitude on the team where everyone is comfortable asking questions because it's, like you said, it's really important to make sure people understand what's being said and don't necessarily assume they do and are comfortable asking questions about whether or not they have it right and yeah. repeating back what they hear. And I think it's a really useful skill in a professional career to avoid making assumptions and try to keep an open mind and ask the questions and know how to ask them in a way that isn't frustrating for the other person who you're constantly asking the questions. Um, so I think, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of social skill in there that takes a little practice and training and thinking about, but is really valuable once you've got it working. How did you get into this altogether? How did you get into space? How did you get cubed? When, when, right. How did, what, was, what was the beginning for you? So I think the beginning of space for me was a very creative, artistic, 
I think she would appreciate this term flamboyant fourth grade teacher that I had who encouraged us to really dig into our projects. And I remember having a project on the solar system that really caught my interest. And I loved researching in encyclopedias that were still heavy volumes of books at the time and not Wikipedia. (laughs) Yeah. I liked going through them and looking at the pictures and seeing what we had learned for each planet and drawing pictures of it and imagining what we might find and how we would get there. Um, So for me, I think that's where I first remember really thinking, oh, this is cool. Um, And then in college, I remember seeing an ad. I was a freshman and I was walking down a hallway and I saw a bulletin board with a picture of a rover on Mars and There hadn't been rovers on Mars yet, Um, (laughs) so it was just a cartoon, but it was an advertisement for students to come work with one of the professors in the astronomy department, and his name was Steve Squires, and so he was the one who developed the Spirit and Opportunity Mars Rovers. And And you worked on that as a student? I worked on that as a student, as a little freshman, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, he had us start off learning the language, learning to communicate. So some of the first tasks were calling into the meeting, taking notes, learning how to talk the same jargon and the meanings of the terms as everybody else. So that was the first thing he had us do was just get familiar with that. And then once we had gotten past that point, then we could start to do more of the complicated tasks with hardware or software analysis and planning. But the first part was just Join the meetings, help take the notes, understand what's going on, show you know what's going on. Well, you've really helped me understand a little bit more about what's going on, about something I never even imagined existed. These cubes shooting around in space. Well, thank you for taking me up there and bringing me safely back. I appreciate it. I've really enjoyed this conversation. We, we always end our talks with seven quick questions. Okay. It, roughly to do with science. As you think back over your life, can you remember the first thing you were curious about? (laughs) My memory goes back pretty far, Alan. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. But the very first thing that I was curious about, I remember being, I must have been a toddler, and I was sitting on a shag carpet because it was the late 70s or early 80s and I was watching my dad and he was holding something out on the other side of the room and it made a crackling noise and I believe it was a piece of chocolate bar and a candy wrapper but I remember making a beeline for that thing because it was colorful it made noise and it smelled good so (laughs) that's my first memory of being curious (laughs) wow that you, you you really went back to an early step what what made you want to be a scientist For me, I really like learning about what's around me. You know, we have, we're animated matter (laughs) with a lot of sensors stuck in a gravity well on a heavier piece of matter. And that's a little romantic for me. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It sounds very, very, um, you know. Yeah, it's real touchy feely. Right. But, but there's so much going on and so much that is happening that we can see and observe, even with the limited equipment we have and understanding exactly what it is 
and trying to take in everybody else's observations and come to some understanding with them that may or may not be correct um, is is what really motivates me. I, I think it's very interesting to try to figure out what what exactly is going on. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so yeah, I think it, science matches well with that. Still that same impulse you had as a baby. What's that crackling thing that smells so good? Exactly. <laughs> what part of your research do you enjoy doing the most? Working with the students in my lab and in my classes. I think encouraging them and picking up on their curiosity and being inspired by them and trying to share what I know. I wouldn't be where I am without having had so many talented, patient people interact with me at many points in my life. And I can see the value and the outcomes from doing that every day when I work with my students and other other people's students, quite frankly. Um, so I think for me, it's that talking with and working with others and having that contact and sharing knowledge and ideas and listening that is the most fun part. So as a scientist, what's the best moment you've ever had? Oh, that's a, that's a tie. That's a tie. There are two really great moments that you always remember. One is when you're in space science anyway, one is watching something you've built, leave the earth and get to orbit on a rocket. Um, getting to the point of watching that rocket is a lot of work. I don't think anybody ever tells you that there is many hours of driving and chasing rockets and watching scrubbed launches and <laughs> waiting and waiting and waiting to even get to see that happen. But when you see it happen, it is, it is a really powerful moment. You feel the blast of hot air hit you from the rocket. You see the trail go up. You see the rocket ascending. You see it make its gravity turn. You see the separation. Um, it, it's it's a, quite a feeling to see something that you've worked on get so far away from from where you're stuck, um, and then getting the first contact and signal down that lets you know it's working. <laughs> That's the next part. You don't always get that, but if you do, the first time you hear contact with something that you've sent very far away from you is is a really impactful, rewarding memory. So what's been the worst moment? So the worst moment is when something breaks and when you can't make the progress that you wanted to on the schedule you wanted to and it, having to deal with that change and sometimes loss of capability. The other thing that really feels terrible is when you make a mistake and you realize it and then you have to communicate to everybody else that you've made the mistake, what the mistake was, what you learned from it and what it means, what the impact of that mistake will be and the best you can do at correcting it. 
those, those are the hard times. Um, when you, when you're really, you gain experience, but it's not, it's not super fun. <laughs> I imagine those are times when you need to pull yourself together and carry on, which is yeah. a time when you need confidence. What the next to last question is just that, what gives you confidence? Oh, let's see. I guess a couple things contribute to confidence. One is just faith that I'm part of a bigger system and there are other forces at play and I am doing the best I can to play my role as, as well as I can. So just that feeling of being part of something that's bigger than you somehow, you're not quite sure how you ended up as part of it, but you know, you're part of it and that you're committed to trying to do the best you can. Um, and, and, I, I guess some of the other things that build confidence are making the mistakes and learning from them and having enough information and experience that you can make different decisions and have a really good rationale for why you're making different choices now. Um, so I think, I think learning from mistakes and that faith in being part of something larger is is what helps me move forward um, with confidence. The last question is one that that really stems from what we were talking about a minute ago the the problems of communicating and it, and it's this how can we in your opinion how can we get more people to fall in love with science to get more people to fall in love with science means taking time to tell stories about where we are and what we see using lots of different methods of expression and words. I think even the word science right now is off-putting to some people, but the idea of a tree growing from a seed is not. Mm. So I think making sure that we talk about important things using a variety of terms and that we try to avoid the tendency to be efficient and use a limited jargon set will help us. Right, because, because a jargon word can stand for five pages of normal talk. Right. And it's much easier to think in those terms if you're talking to somebody who knows exactly what the five pages are that correspond to the term. <laughs> right. So there's nothing wrong with jargon if it's among people who understand it. But as you pointed out, as you entered as a student a lab where you didn't speak the language, the first thing the professor did was introduce you to the language. Exactly. So the world exactly. speaking in common terms. Yeah. And I think even within the jargon and using it with someone who knows exactly what it means, there if you do that repeatedly without stepping back, there's a loss of appreciation for all of the implications that come along with it. The coolness, the beauty, the, you know, everyday miracles that come along with some of these events that you don't get to reflect on if you're just using the same terms over and over and you don't step back and take another look. And you know, the, along those lines, when you were describing the feeling you had of seeing a rocket take off 
And the moments, the separate moments, when it made that curve, when it dropped, when it separated and dropped the back back end, those were exciting moments for you because you had had some something to do, something important to do with building the thing, with making it work. And it was exciting for you to see it succeeding. Mm -hmm. And I have the feeling that when people have a little more understanding of what goes into an effort like that, they almost have some of the same ownership of it that you had in building it. This thing that I know a little bit about, it just did this incredible thing. That's a wonderful feeling. It is. And and that's part of being the bigger picture. We couldn't have built the satellite without people who manufacture screwdrivers, um, <laughs> without people who make clothes for us to wear, without people who make food for us to eat as we're doing all of these things. So I feel that, you know, we do all work together and we can't achieve great things without this community of collaboration where everybody gives a little of something and we all benefit. Well, I've really enjoyed our talk and and I thank you again for introducing me to this wonderful new thing. It's like it, it's like a jack in the box all by itself. Right. <laughs> wonderful surprises are coming out of it all the time and I love that. Thanks for talking with me. I really appreciate it, Carrie. I I'm really happy for the opportunity and thank you again for your time and the great questions and discussion. It's been really uplifting. Thank you. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Kerry Cahoy is Associate Professor of Aeronautics and Astronautics at MIT, where she leads the MIT Space, Telecommunications, Astronomy, and Radiation Lab. She's also the co-director of MIT's Small Satellite Center. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. On the next Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Lucy Applin. She studies how innovation spread within societies. Not human societies, but societies of birds. In particular, how cockatoos in one suburb of Sydney, Australia, picked up and spread a novel way of raiding trash bins. So the birds need to go right onto the rim of the bin, and then they need to lift the bin at the handle. They usually do this with their foot, and then they need to transfer it to their mouth, and then they sort of shuffle down the side of the bin um, until they get to that point where they can push it over so it opens up. And probably because it's so physically challenging, they're also very good at targeting what bin to open. So over 90% of the observations of both us and um, the citizen scientists that we recruited to watch out for the behaviour reported that it was 
on the red lidded bins, which in Sydney are the general waste bins. So they completely ignore the recycling bins and go straight for the bins that they know will have food in it. And through that, we were able to track its geographic spread from observations in only three suburbs to 42 suburbs by the end of the second year. Lucy Applin and the clever cockatoos of Sydney, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter, at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.